right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. If you're listening to this on the Empire feed, Santi, uh, Santi went soft on us. Santi got COVID, actually, from Token 2049. So uh, if you are hearing this on the Empire feed, we have plugged the Bell Curve roundup with Vance and Michael, uh, who are the founders of Framework Ventures, um, into the Empire feed. So enjoy. Uh, there's also a disclosure that we have to read. Uh, because we have been apparently leaking too much alpha on the show. So we are uh, reading a new disclosure. The views expressed by my co-host today, including Michael and Vance, are their personal views and do not necessarily represent the views of any organization with which my co-hosts are associated. And nothing in this episode or any episode of Bell Curve is construed or relied upon us as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. Damn, you guys, uh, what, did you just get new lawyers or something? That is a good, <laughs> that is a good disclaimer. Cover all the bases. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have, I have seen that email come through every week being like, you guys need to fix the disclaimer. I'm like, ah, or the disclosure. So anyways, here we are. Um, no more Sorry, guys. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. All right. We got a lot to talk about today. Um, so I want to jump straight into it. We are do not have uh, Macro Mike joining us today, so we will be skipping the macro. We will be skipping the charts that I think uh, are just a bunch of tea leaves. What we are going to do is jump right into Sushi. So a couple things I want to talk about today. Sushi, um, maybe Solana MEV, maybe Polygon Supernets. I want to get your guys' take on Cosmos and the whole narrative and just Cos- uh, Adam 2.0. Potentially talk about this idea about Unichain and like app chains right after Cosmos. But per usual, we'll see where this conversation takes us. Uh, for those who missed it, uh, SushiSwap um, uh, brought in a new head chef. So I can kind of give you, let me share my screen here and show you guys uh, the story. If you can see this here, um, SushiSwap head chef election was settled by Golden Tree and Cumberland. The reason that that was the title of the BlockWorks article is that there were 13 million votes um, to basically elect a new chief executive of SushiSwap, aka the head chef, uh, Cumberland and Golden Tree. Uh, Cumberland's a huge like OTC desk market maker, um, trading firm in crypto. Golden Tree is a massive asset manager. They have $47 billion under management. Uh, they ca- cast a combined 8.1 million of the 13 million votes. Uh, there were three other kind of big whales that cast 11 million of the 13 million votes. So 11 million of the 13 million votes were cast by just these five big whales. Uh, and they elected this new guy, Jared Gray, who used to be the CEO of DeFi platform Eons Finance. Um, there were two other people, someone named Andy and someone named Ken, who finished second and third. So sorry, sorry for you guys, Andy and Ken. Um, Michael and Vance, what do you guys think about this? I mean, I think uh, you kind of got to go into the history of Sushi first, um, which like, you know, the very like Cliff Notes version is uh, launched as like Uniswap copy pasta. Uh, you know, they vampire attacked them with tokens. It was like kind of this populist movement. There's like so much drama with Sushi Swap, you know, uh, chef, uh, chef Nomi rugged. Oh, yeah, Nomi, Nomi. Nomi rugged, returned it. Um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff happening. Um, Joseph DeLong was the CTO for, for a good while and, and was kind of like the, you know, like beating the populist drum against Uniswap. Um, like he, he left, there was like a struggle for, for leadership and, and this thing's kind of been like, you know, floating in the water for probably like a year now, just waiting on, on what it does next. And, um, I had honestly kind of written Sushi Swap off as kind of like one of these uh, DeFi protocols that was like, you know, Frog Nation, uh, Luna, like too decentralized, like not enough central control, not enough of a strong leadership figure. And so, you know, had written them off, 
was surprised to see somebody step up and say, like, I want to be the head chef of sushi. Um, digging into it, like, it, it does make sense. Like, there is some value in this ecosystem. Like, there's certainly a good deal of trading volume. I think for us, uh, projects that have a lot of, like, emotional and drama baggage are hard to kind of, like, you know, be excited about. I think, like, you know, uh, it's definitely one of, like, kind of, like, the more like rookie style mistakes of like just saying like oh yeah like we can fix this you know like i can i can save this project like there's some that you definitely can there's like probably a larger group that you can't um but yeah i mean this is probably the first DeFi protocol that was super decentralized to have someone pick up the reins and try to run with it like yearn you know uh like uh, sushi swap frankly like these are kind of the two main ones that we're waiting to see what happens long term but it's certainly a positive sign I think just to <clears throat> piggyback on that, um, I, I, I kind of think about this in, in the comparison of centralized tech companies or startups. Uh, you know, the rate of decision making, the speed of the the veracity of the decisions that are being made, um, everybody's swimming in the same direction. You lose that with decentralization versus centralized. And when you have these ma major pivots, you know, like this situation or, or any other major pivots in, in DeFi protocols, uh, in in the past few years, you know, synthetics has gone through a number of pivots or changes. Used to be called Haven. Um, that takes a really really strong founder, usually, or a really really strong person, to be able to rally the community, get the core contributors on board, bring in new people to help fill gaps or or grow the team. And it it's also true in tech companies. You know, when when you have sort of a founder led technology company, and this is one of the the core theses of a, a lot of venture capital firms, they want to see founders be the CEOs. Um, and you know, Mark Andreessen has talked about this a lot. It's because you have the context, you have the history, you have the ability to buy in the rest of the company, um, and you also have the ability to to have a long term view as opposed to someone who's going to be a little bit more mercenary or short term oriented. Um, you know, in situations like this. So, uh, you know, hats off to the team. I, I wish them the best. Um, but but I think generally it's going to be a really hard uphill battle unless you have that history, you know, of, of being the original person and, and just decentralized organizations are going to be tougher. Yeah. Yep. Does, does SushiSwap still have the same model? So I, my memory of Sushi um, is that they have the, is was a fork of Uniswap, but they put in fees basically. So right. that... Um, is what distribution holders got like 0.05% and liquidity providers got like 25 bips or something like that. And that was really the primary difference was on the fee structure. Yeah. And I think they, I, I could be wrong. They also maybe did like the X sushi. So like the X token concept first for staking mm -hmm. um, was another component. They also released like Trident. Like it's not like a pure copy paste fork um, of, of Uniswap anymore. Like there's certainly differentiation. I will say, like, you know, thinking back on it, like, a little bit more deeply, like, this is not the first time someone's tried to turn this around. I remember Defiance. Uh, I remember Arca as well. Uh, I think the difference here is, like, you have the guy. And it's always just a matter of, like, who's sitting in the seat. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to find out pretty quickly if, if he's legit or not, which is cool. But I really like to see people just, like, doubling down and throwing their weight behind something. I feel like a lot of times in crypto, like, everyone's, like, perpetually hedging, like, What's the next rotation? What's the next app category? What's the like? It's like no, like you actually have to sit there and like hands-on keyboard like build this thing. And so yeah. I think that's a positive. There are no amount of Jeff Dorman tweet threads that could save uh, could save sushi. Not not <laughs> enough in the world. Not but enough. Not for, but, not for, but not for lack of trying. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, let me. I'll play devil's advocate here. Actually, um, so 
argument that says this is maybe not going to work out and that Sushi's just going to continue kind of falling is that uh, super messy project. They've been out without kind of leadership since uh, Zero X Maki. They've been looking for the CEO for a long time, like insane amount of drama, drama around like how much to pay people to, which was just like all out in the open because it's a DAO. Um, and like, you just got to imagine that Uniswap's just going to continue innovating more, more than uh, Sushi will. Um, the counter argument maybe could be that, okay, so Jared Gray gets put in as head chef. Uh, process obvi obviously wasn't that smooth. The community had a lot of pushback because it felt like this very centralized uh, process, but he's going to focus on, uh, I don't know. It's like, you've got this, it'll be interesting to have like a non-crypto, not, I guess he is, never mind. I was going to say, it'll be interesting to have a non-crypto, like non-DeFi builder come in and really focus on just like hyper focusing on revenue and market share. But he is, I guess he is a DeFi. He did come yeah. from the DeFi uh, world. Uh, so uh, what, one kind of, where I think you were kind of heading, um, and one of the things that I've been thinking about just in reading this news is like, okay, let's take the competitive set of Sushi versus Uni. And who knows exactly what the details are, and, and we can probably talk deeper about this uh, later, or or we can save it for now too. Um, but, you know, what's going on with Uni right now? You know, there, there are at yeah. least rumors that they're raising for Uniswap Labs. How does that relate to the Uniswap token? Does that change their general strategy going forward? Um, does that mean that they're maybe moving away from, you know, a token-based decentralized DAO-based model? Um, not to say that they've ever been as decentralized as Sushi, but, you know, like there are big questions going on right now as to like what the direction of Uniswap is going forward. And and I think there's, there's a bit of like, okay, if they're going to zig, then, then maybe Sushi's going to be able to zag and have some counter position perspective. Um, so I, I do think that's actually kind of an interesting dynamic of like what's going on with Uni. Yeah. Yep. I think the other part is like um, Uniswap is certainly really impressive right now. I think they've got like 70, 80% of the market share of like DEXs on at least like ETH and ETH L2s. Um, what we found just, you know, being LPs, like we were the largest LP in, in Uniswap for I think like over a year at one point. Um, it's really hard to make money in the UniV3 setup, especially when you're like, you know, accounting for things like impermanent loss and like your positions being stale, like it's incredibly hard to make money. And, and a lot of times when you're an LP and you swap B3, you're actually losing money. And so like the long-term customer for these, like all of these things is not actually the swappers. It's the LPs. Like the liquidity needs to be there to manifest swappers. Right now as a swapper on Uniswap and as someone who uses this stuff a lot, like I feel like we're getting really good, potentially too good execution on a lot of things that are either stale or, you know, LPs that are having problems making money. And so, you know, one thing that I consider is like, is it really Uniswap versus SushiSwap? Is there a better, different model that's going to come out and actually like disaggregate these? Um, hmm. And I think the answer is probably yes um, over the long, long term. Uh, just because like the LP setup for for Uniswap LPs right now is so dire and you're not really making a ton of money. Um, yeah. Like we've had startups that have gone off and tried to build position managers for UniV3 and have done, you know, like, uh, I guess, like two years of economic simulations on how it works and what, what the best optimal position is. They're like, we can't build a position manager that makes money here. And so, like, that is, like, a pretty big red flag. And I think what that points to is, like, there has to be some other model. If, is it payment for order flow? Is it, you know, something else that, that really comes in and disaggregates it? Like, you know, like, people, uh, like, okay, you're trying to compete with Google in 2001, 
uh, what's the best way to do that? Probably not build a search engine, probably go build like a social media network. Like there has to be some other vector that is the real competition because this doesn't seem like it's the one. Yeah. I mean, here's maybe another competitive angle that they could take. So it's, it, even though what's this guy's name, Jared Gray, it seems like he's coming from, from, uh, from DeFi. He's clearly backed by wisdom tree and Cumberland. Um, and it seems like wisdom tree and Cumberland were doing some work behind the scenes before the vote to make sure that the community was, was kind of backing this guy. Um, maybe sushi now becomes like, you know, you've got this protocol that's spitting off revenue. They've got the fee structure already implemented. Like maybe uni becomes the, um, the, uh, excuse me, sushi becomes like the protocol that's favored by some of these like bigger, more traditional funds, right? Like, uh, I don't know if you guys saw Avi Fellman from Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is uh, obviously head of crypto Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is a $47 billion asset manager. They, I mean, they have a tiny microscopic position. It's $5 million, I think, which is like 0.01% of their book, if I'm doing that math right, or like even less than that. Well, I think um, Golden Tree is their crypto sub, right? No, Golden Tree is the fund. Golden Tree is the fund. I oh, think. you're saying Wisdom Tree. Uh, Golden Tree. Thank you. Thank you. Golden yeah, Tree. Okay. Uh, Golden. Yeah, Golden Tree. Um, and they they came in and they posted this govern uh, this thing on the governance forum, being like, "Hey, we want to help. Like, we want to help with tokenomics. We want to help with general design and general strategy. We've been talking through it with the team. So, if someone like a, a Golden Tree gets on board, Cumberland's on board. Like, I maybe you could see like traditional funds coming coming on to something like Sushi. And now you've got this new guy, Gray, uh, who's like clearly kind of uh, favorable for these folks." I think it's back to your point of like, you know, uh, how many Jeff Dorman tweets can save this project? It's like probably there's not enough. And like, you know, like we throw our weight behind projects and we'll put, put liquidity and trading volume through them. At the end of the day, it needs to succeed on its own merits. Like, you know, the VCs are not going to be able to make the difference. Right. You need good product. product. You need good product. But I was going to say. Be trending in your favor as well. Like, are, are you the solution that's better? Or are you the direction that the market's trending? Um, too early to tell for sushi, but it's going to take more than just like governance posts. And this is like, you know, inclusive of all the things that we do as well. Like we're not going to be able to save projects or, or really even make the difference. We might give you 30 or 40 better percent better odds, but like at the end of the day, it's about who's sitting in the chair. So I, I think the big question here is what does it mean to have all the funds on your side, right? Uh, does it mean that everybody's buying up sushi and voting in governance and participating? Or does it mean that they're actually sending flow through? Because that's really all that matters at the end of the day. And I, I have yet to see an institutional perspective of, hey, this is the preferred institutional way to way to trade. If, if we're still here in a year talking about this and, you know, uh, Golden Tree has made good on all of their promises, um, I think that's amazing. Uh, but like there is this thing with hedge funds where, you know, things are said, you know, are, is there the follow through if the price goes in half? Is there still the same level of commitment? Um I think the plug for VCs, which are often shat on, is, uh, you know, like we have like a 10 year time horizon, 15 if we really yeah, need it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, that's a great call. It's like when you see some of these hedge funds posting on Twitter uh, that they're like long this thing, like they could be long for the next three days and then right. and then they're out. <laughs> like so. love, love Hal Press, love, you know, uh, Bridge, uh, Tower Bridge, whatever they're called, love, uh, you know, all the hedge funds, like a lot of respect, but you know, here today, potentially gone tomorrow. Like we, we yeah. just need to see. Yeah. Let's, um, let's pivot. Cause I want to talk about, um, so we were talking about sushi swap. Let's talk about Uniswap. So Dan Elitzer, um, had this thread in like a piece, uh, about the inevitability of the uni chain. So I'm just going to summarize it a little bit. 
Um, he basically said the uni chain is, and this, this will tie into our Cosmos conversation. So over the past few months, like talking about Cosmos, there's been a lot of interest in app specific chains um, or like app chains, basically. Uh, Uniswap is the dominant DEX. They have 400 billion in volume across like 39 million trades in the past 12 months. Uh, Dan's argument is that a uni chain is inevitable. Uh, there are three, as Dan puts it, there are three costs right now to DEX traders, swap fees to L swap fees to LPs, transaction fees uh, to validators and MEV to the validators and market makers today. Um, uh, and, and swap fees being so like th those are kind of the three costs right now that are happening. And his argument is that if you moved onto your own chain, uh, you could get rid of a lot of those costs. Um, and by being an app chain, Uni would basically minimize the transaction fees and the MEV, internalize all the marginal revenue from those activities. That rep marginal revenue could flow to the Uni token. Um, and I think I think that's the argument there. So I'm curious, maybe Vance, what do you what do you think of something like a Uniswap moving to a Uni chain? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we've talked about this before, but Robert Leshner at Compound, um, and we have an episode with Robert and Stani coming out on Monday, actually, where where I asked Robert about this, like moving to their own chain. They they tried, right? They tried to create Compound Chain with Polkadot, and it just they just didn't like Polkadot. Um, so what, what do you think of this? Is this something that you would recommend if you were advising the Uniswap team? Uh, no. Um, and here's why. Like, DeFi is, um, DeFi is infrastructure. You know, I'm not going to Uniswap so that I can go hang out on uniswap.com. Like, there's nothing there. It's like a little swap widget. There's nothing. There's nothing there. What I am going to Uniswap for is so, you know, if I'm some retail guy from last year, so I can trade Shiba Inu token, so I can trade, you know, Dogecoin token. Um, and, and so, like, I'm not going there for Uniswap.com. I'm going there so I can trade these these assets. Okay, now let's, let's follow the logic tree into, like, why are the assets on Ethereum? The assets are on Ethereum because that's where the highest, you know, net value of customers are. That's where everyone's transacting. It's like the world stage of finance. And so, like, moving to your own chain... Uh, might be great and it might sound like it makes a lot of sense, but like who's coming with me? You know, it's like that, the, the Jerry Maguire thing. It's like, you know, it's like, well, th there's not a whole lot of people coming with you. There's no assets on the chain. There's no value there. There's also no users. So you need to like reinstantiate this world, convince everyone to launch on your chain. Like only then would the assumptions that Dan has really play out. What do I think is like a more likely concept? Um, I think, uh, the people who are actually drawing people into the ecosystem last year, that was the stupid, you know, dog coins next year. I think it's going to be like the well thought out games that have a lot of utility when they're successful enough. They're probably more of like the Machiavellian nature where they're like, I want to internalize the whole thing. I want to own the MEV. I want to own the spread. I want to own everything. Um, and so they're going to launch their own chain um, for Uniswap they're going to have to go launch on the new chains that like, you know, people are making, like, it's not going to be Unichain. It's going to be like game chain. And then Uniswap will be so lucky as to be a major participant in that. But like, this is where this thing that we we're just talking about, like sushi swap versus Uniswap is sushi swap going to get there first. Is Uniswap going to get there first? Is it some other payment forward to flow model that gives more economics back to the games gets there first? None of this has to do with Unichain, but it just is like illustrating why this is kind of like a, a faulty logic assumption. Yeah, it's same point, but um, there is a fourth uh, cost associated with trading on a DEX, which is slippage. Slippage is predicated on how much liquidity you have in the AMM. And if you're building your own chain, by default, you're going to have less liquidity <clears throat> until until the bridging is 
you know, strong enough, robust enough, lindy enough. Uh, but that's going to take a long time. And it, it is this sort of um, the reason why all this stuff is on Ethereum is because you have the liquidity to be able to trade in size. So where it's actually useful and interesting. And I, I think disrupting that is uh, it, I, I don't think that it's a great idea, but I think it's also potentially disastrous for your core business as it exists today. Hmm. Vance, what's the counter argument to what you're saying? Like, why should why should they like where, in what scenario are you wrong or what would make you change your mind? The counter argument to what I'm saying is something like, um, so assume the assets are going to launch on the place where there's the most customers, and that is going to be, you know, ETH and Solana, BSC, whatever, whatever you want. The counter argument would be, you know, the assets that are being traded or the games that are bringing people in um, will continue to live at the layers that everyone knows and loves. Loves, but Uniswap will be able to have uh, people transact uh, through them through their chain, but still have all the assets live on these these commonly known and acknowledged base layers. And like that might make sense. That also has like a lot of like interoperability assumptions, where like the assets stay in one place, but like your DAX is actually executing and functioning on another. Um, Uniswap, frankly, doesn't seem like the team to build up like an, a ton of like interop assumptions into their business model. Um, I think that would be kind of the counter argument. The other, the other counter argument is now like Uniswap is such a big player and they have, uh, such large market share of the commonly traded base pairs. So like ETH and USD that like maybe moving this whole thing over to the other ecosystem, uh, isn't so bad. Um, I think the problem with that argument is that, uh, the, the basis points and the slippage and the MEV on like ETH USDC transfers really not that big. Like most of what Uniswap makes its money on are like, like the out, uh, the ample force of the world. Like remember when that was going on, like when that Uniswap pool was just like popping off, they were rebasing the coin, like speculative activity. Like unless they have that, like this argument gets a lot weaker. Hmm. Michael, when does it, okay. So if it doesn't make sense for someone like Uniswap to do their own, have their own app chain, when does it make sense to have to have your own app chain, or maybe this is getting at the heart of your guys' thesis that you don't like the app chain thesis. <laughs> so I, app chain, app chain thesis is alive and well. I think when you need your own app chain, it's when you need to control things like transaction throughput, transaction costs. You need to like control the economics of the core user experience. And so I was actually going to say the counter argument to, uh, uh, as well as have you know a, a core infrastructure layer that's. You know, it's kind of like driving a manual transition versus an automatic. Like you got to source the validators. You got to make sure they're all on board. You got to make sure the upgrades do it smoothly. Like right now, Ethereum basically takes all the backend services of running a, a, a function like swapping assets and handles it all for Uniswap. And yes, you have to pay gas fees and that's that's where, you know, users are paying those fees. But <clears throat> if you want to if you want to kind of go manual and, and do it yourself, that's great. It also provides an additional utility for the Uni token itself because that's what is secure in the network. And, you know, right now, Uniswap uh, or Uni versus Sushi, it's just governance and, you know, there's no fees flowing to it currently. Sure, there's the mechanism eventually if, if that gets turned on. But then having the additional utility for the unit token is something that I think you know could be additionally valuable. The the thing that I you know to Vance's earlier point on like DeFi as infrastructure, liquidity is so important for DeFi. It's really hard to see uh, without 
a, a really solid example of extremely trusted bridging. It's really hard to see how you can be able to trust putting all the liquidity on fragmented different app chains, at least in the current state of the world, maybe in like three to five years when we've like got IBC completely functional and everybody's yeah. in agreement. But right now, like I'm not going to put any of my assets into a bridge or, or trust a bridge in any size. And so that that like negates me as like a large DEX user uh, of being able to like move my assets over. So what I would rather have is a situation where you have less value on these app chains and only bring them over when you need to. And, and I think we've talked about this maybe two episodes ago. I think actually games are a perfect example of how the app chain thesis plays out. Less DeFi infrastructure because transaction throughput is not going to be a gating item nearly as much as games will be. And if you can control your own technology, your own scale, uh, games make a better ecosystem uh, example for for the for the app chain thesis versus DeFi because you want to aggregate liquidity within DeFi, whereas games it's not necessarily as important for that. Yeah, I mean, you could, I think you could argue that liquidity is the most important feature of DeFi. Hundred uh, percent, but by far, uh, like if you think about, it, and I think the reason the reason I say that is because it enables. Liquidity across DeFi enables the experimentation of financial products to be 100 times faster in DeFi than it is anywhere else. Um, like I, I was talking to Mike about this the other day. If you if you launch a, like, if, first off, if you want to launch a financial app in like, at, at, within like a bank, like at Goldman, like you want to launch a new product, or maybe I was talking to you guys, maybe this was on one of the podcasts. I think we've talked about this here, but like if you want to launch a product at Goldman, it takes like four years to launch the product. If you want to launch a FinTech app, you first have to launch the app. It's easier to launch an app than launch a product within Goldman, but you first have to launch the app. How are you going to get users? You got to you got to raise a shit ton of VC money, go spend that on a bunch of Facebook and Instagram ads, and then acquire users. Or you could, you know, obviously sponsor the Bell Curve podcast uh, <laughs> and acquire a bunch of users that way. And then, uh, and then, but like, there's no way to get the liquidity takes years, right? And DeFi liquidity liquidity can take minutes. So I think that's the powerful part. I mean, this pitch, this storyline, this narrative is exactly probably in like most of our pitch decks. <laughs> yep. One, one, uh, one just like brief note on Uniswap, not to get like too far away from the app chain thesis, but I think there was this really big bull case on AMMs and composability uh, kind of like two, two and a half years ago. And I think where we kind of mostly saw that are things like flash loans and, and MEV kind of between like the big money markets of a compound and like Uniswap and SushiSwap. Like I remember NDYDX, like when they used to do, uh, I think it was like unlimited flash loans or something, but like there was this kind of like big composability moment happening and people like extrapolated out like, okay, cool. Like what's next. And I think what people thought was next was effectively. Um, and we, we backed a couple, a couple companies that tried to do this unsuccessfully was like, cool. Uniswap is super composable. Let's build stuff on top of it. So like, what would, what, what did we fund? We funded like, things that were building position managers on UniV3. And like, it just turned out that, you know, the LP experience was not good enough where we could provide uh, effectively, um, uh, you know, a way to manage his positions automatically through UniV3. So that really never happened. The other category that we backed was kind of like margin or features trading built on top of, uh, in one sec. You're going to kill, you're going to kill the listeners ears with that. Sorry, got a girlfriend. Um, but uh, 
the the other thing that we backed and and you know which didn't work was kind of like people building out features and margin trading on on Uniswap on top of it using like literally the underlying liquidity from the Uni V3 positions to rehypothecate leverage positions. That also didn't work. It just became too hard to actually within the Uni V3 context like build out this thing. And so one one kind of like additional like bearish like piece of information about Uniswap is like the composability movement of like higher order products being built on top of it just kind of hasn't happened. Um, and so maybe that's like an avenue that SushiSwap can uh, can build out and differentiate on. But that was something that we were super bullish on, which just like didn't happen. That's interesting. Um, there are two places we could go here. One is I want to get your guys' take on Cosmos and Vance, you ping me this weekend being like, I'm digging into Adam 2.0. So I want to hear your thoughts from, from that research. Uh, the other place is... Um, I really want to get your guys' take on private order flow. Um, I was on a call earlier today with a big, big, big uh, MEV, uh, like like a search uh, with a searching firm, and they're like private order flow is the new MEV. And so I've just been trying to think about what that means. And so Vance, because you're giving me those uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the cute eyebrow raise, the do do do, I will uh, pick on you for this answer. You're muted. Michael, should we let him just keep going for a while? <laughs> I can tell he's passionate about the topic. That's good, though. I mean, we have investments there, so of course I am. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do think this is kind of like the, okay, if you want to go compete with Google, go build something some on some entirely different vector. And like, what are the vectors? Um, the first one is just like, it's a better LP experience. Wait, actually, sorry, Vance, can we zoom out? Can you explain yeah. private order flow to me? Yeah, I was going to say. Sure. So if you think of a DEX like, uh, you know, like a front end like Zapper, for instance, um, they're the fourth largest DEX. Like people don't know that, but they serve a ton of flow towards Uniswap and towards Matcha. And and what happens is, uh, you know, someone wants to swap. Uh, cool. You're accessing the Uniswap or the Matcha RFQ system um, and the order executes that way. Um that doesn't really happen in traditional finance. There's not like these large latent pools of capital that are just willing to serve you execution at probably like a sub, a better than you should expect price. In in TradFi, the monitor the the model of monetization is payment for order flow. And what does that mean? It, it means private order flow, kind of like we've been discussing. But you know, Robinhood has a trade. Okay, cool. We'll sell that order flow ahead of time to Citadel, who you know gives the customer zero basis point fee swaps and internalizes all the flow and volume and uses it to monetize it in a different way. And so, you know, like, let's apply that model to crypto. So instead of Uniswap um, and, you know, this like 30 basis point model, you send it directly to a, a protocol or a set of people that are willing to bid ahead of time for your order flow. Um, they're willing to bid up to the cost of, you know, something like a Uniswap. So the users get like 20 or 30 basis point of spread, you know, back to them. Um, but on top of that, the market makers sell the flow or, or they execute the flow and they give the wallet back, you know, a few basis points on that. And like, it's basically taking the payment forward flow model from TradFi and exporting it to DeFi. What are the downsides of this? Um, not everyone is sophisticated enough to bid on order flow. Like you have to have a very specific perspective. You probably need to be based in some sort of, you know, uh, MLAI discipline to really kind of tell what it's worth long-term. Um, and so it's a more exclusive kind of participant set. And that's kind of generally how DeFi has been trending. Uni V2, throw 50-50 ETH USDC in. We're all going to have a good time. You know, we're all going to make it. 
UV3, okay, you need to have a, a perspective on where you're setting your range, like how the price moves, like what are you going to do, even more exclusive. And we're kind of moving into an even more exclusive world with payment for order flow and private order flow in general. Um, so the, the, the negatives are um, that it's a more exclusive you know, experience for the LPs. The other positive I would say is that this reduces MEV entirely. Like MEV is as a result of basically um, bad execution, I would call it, you know, just at a very high level. Um, and this basically ensures that users get the best price at any moment based on, you know, the market maker's understanding of the flow and the current price on the, on the exchange. So there's good and bad. I would say it's overall more mature. I would also say it's just easier to port place to place. If you've got a game launching mm. on its own app chain, you, know, you don't have to port over the Uniswap contracts. You don't have to port over the liquidity. Okay, like what assets do you need? Okay, I don't have those. Okay, I need to go get them. Like professional market makers, professional DAOs that are bidding on order flow take care of that. And so if you're a bull on the app chain thesis, on the fragmentation thesis of these chains, private order flow is probably like a more interesting model than like reconstructing AMMs everywhere you go. So what, one thing that I just want to double click on, and I'll, I'll pose the question back to Vance maybe, or, or I can dig it on it as well, is like, let's, let's just dive a little bit deeper onto the economic model. So right now you've got a trader that's on Uniswap and they're going to experience a 30 basis point fee by using Uniswap. There's also going to be some you know, cost of using the Ethereum protocol, which is the gas fees. Then there's also going to be MEV, which may be another base, couple of basis points where they're not going to get the best execution because someone's going to front on them or, or you know, reorg the block as it's being produced. How, do, how does this change when you've got payment for order flow in the like, and where does, basically, where does the advantage come from? Well, and, yeah, yeah, it's like the, the supply chain of MEV, right, is like user to the wallet, to the searcher, to the builder, to the validator, right? Yep. So, yep. so how does so how does that look different in in this system? So, um, will be a good analogy here. So, if you think about like kind of uh, an order book, uh, and like the order book goes from like you know the very top of the book, the the trades that retail are doing, uh, to the very bottom of the book. So, like the super complicated MEV trades that are happening, and like people are fighting over them. Payment for order flow kind of lives at like a higher level of abstraction where mm. you're just meeting the user right where they are. You're saving them 30 basis points that it costs to trade on Uniswap. Um, and the wallet is making money instead of the LPs. That's kind of like the fundamental change. And that's like really at the top of the order book. The MEV stuff is like, okay, is there sloppy execution on AMM? Are there still orders? Like did the price move while the AMM's price didn't move? Like that's where all the MEV stuff comes from. And so really like, Payment for order flow kind of serves to eliminate MEV. If it's, you know, if, if everyone adopts this in mass, like it should eliminate a lot of the MEV that exists in ecosystems today. And so it kind of throws a lot of like, you know, to go back to like the Unichain thesis, like if MEV doesn't exist, you know, like that's going to be a big change for how blockchains are economically constructed. It changes the bull case for the app chain thesis. It changes a lot of things. What is it super bullish on? It, it's bullish on the payment for order flow model. Key, key point here is that you're sending these these orders, this flow to a centralized market maker. You're not sending them through to, to, to Uniswap. It's different than that. So like done correctly, and we've made an investment in this space, like we cannot talk about it because lawyers, but um, the best model of this, why why payment for order flow sucks in TradFi is because it's only Citadel bidding on it. It's like you trading versus Ken Griffin 24-7, 365. 
like, and that's largely because of their regulatory moat. In like the uh, egalitarian payment forward flow model that we think happens, it's like you can have DAOs bidding, you can have centralized market makers bidding, you can have groups oh. of people. Bidding. Like it, it's an auction process that includes a lot of different types of participants. And like, we don't want the model to be, you know, us trading against Citadel, but like in DeFi this time, like we want it to be open to everyone. And that's what I think a lot of the promise is here. So you're basically, yeah, okay, I, I, okay, I think I get it. And so, so in one example, you could take all the transactions instead of routing them through like the open RPC. You could, you could take a private RPC. Basically, the private RPC sits as the aggregator. Um, and uh, oh, interesting. Okay. And the, the payment so, for order flow model too. You're bidding for order flow ahead of time. Right. Yeah. So like, instead of the wallet, I mean, it's an, to, the auction happens before, right? Right, the auction happens before you're 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 selling your order flow ahead of time, yeah, yeah. and so like you'd imagine you need some pretty complex like models to understand what future order flow is like uh, or it is worth, but yeah, I mean huh. these are these are the things where it's like the DeFi protocols are like you know going head to head with each other. I don't know how much that moves the needle, but if someone builds like at a different level of abstraction, this is going to be what eliminates the Uniswaps of the world. Yeah, so this. Got it. So this could bring this would bring down if this system if this got bigger and bigger this would wouldn't this bring down Mev by like ninety five percent or something some large However, number? You you basically get rid of Mev in DeFi transactions uh, that exist on chain because what you're doing in that stack of like user which would be wallet, bad for the app chain which would be bad for the app chain thesis right which would be bad for the app chain thesis for DeFi okay. but good for for the gaming thesis for instance because right. once again. You can route all these transactions to, you know, a centralized payment for order flow transaction module where you don't have to source liquidity on each individual app chain anymore. The app chain can just be, you know, the experience, the game, what have you, some economics, but then the liquidity comes from a single point of, you know, PFOF. And, and like, like who, who benefits here? Um, the people who are swapping, uh, they benefit because there's lower fees. Um, they also benefit because there's lower MEV. Like you're, you're not getting taken to the cleaners every time you swap. Uh, the wallets win because they make more money. You're able to monetize their order flow. Um, like compare that to Uniswap where it's like, you know, this cross section of like semi-professional LPs kind of loses on most trades. It seems like uh, the wallets don't get to monetize or internalize any of the monetization that happens because of these swaps. Like this is where, in our opinion, a lot of this is going. Um, but I think I had one last point. Um, the key part here is that it's an open auction. Yeah. We don't want to recreate Citadel. We want to recreate like a healthy ecosystem of people that are bidding on order flow, that are reducing MEV, that are giving customers back their money, and that are monetizing wallets or whatever the, the conception of wallets are. Hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, does the app chain thesis get more bearish as a result? Probably at the start. Um, but like MEV goes back into consumers' pockets. Like they have more money to spend. Over the longer term, if you build something that's retentive and sticky, you know, they should be spending that back on you. Like that should just only kind of like increase the amount of value that you're capturing as an app chain. So I don't I don't know if it's distinctly bearish long term. I would yeah. say short term probably. Yeah. Will will the MEV will the MEV folk like who's a big like like Flashbots? Is Flashbots gonna look at this, see that this is where the market is going and potentially monetize by hosting these private order flow auctions if, if you if you yeah we're participating in the private order flow we're participating interesting um and now, 
and yeah. and they have like even you know they have like more conflicts too like you're serving the order flow you're serving the mev like like are, are you a wallet monetization service like my instinct is that these need to be like purpose-built things like you can't really be a staking service uh of you know a, a mev service and like payment for order flow like there's going to mm-hmm. be things that succeed and i don't think all the mev is going to go away either like there's going to be a lot of appetite for uni v2 style lp experiences that just have mev endogenously there um so it's going to be a mixture I guess it's actually this nice, like a uh, positive feedback loop, which is private, private order flow is going to help you build these higher value blocks, which are then accepted more by validators yep. uh, which, because the, as the blocks are accepted more then more people are going to give you order flow, more order flow. Right. So, so it's uh it's actually a nice positive feedback loop. That's interesting. Huh? All right. I'm excited to see your guys's investment. Um, I was explaining MEV to uh, a couple of folks on the team today, actually. And they were like, like why don't we do mev like why don't i make some money with mev i was like it's a little more a little more complicated than that so i just want to ask you guys who who are the who's making a boatload of money from from mev right now is it like winter mutant alameda and jump is it like these tiny little five person shops that have a bunch of quants like it's a mixture i I think like the usual suspects for sure uh just to be clear we don't do any mev uh because that is uh it just has some regulatory uh, complications. So yeah, we, we don't do any of this. Um, but your lawyer is so happy right now. You've got that call out. You've got the disclosure at the beginning, phenomenal episode for the lawyer. Usually I'm the one getting in trouble too. Um, <laughs> so there's also kind of like these one man shops. I don't know if you remember Edgar from last summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he was going to like crash Ethereum. I literally yeah. did not sleep that entire weekend because I was concerned that all of our things were going to zero. But like guys like him, like, you know, they're on like BSC, they're doing, they're doing their thing there. Um, like BSC is kind of like, there's different types of MEV in each ecosystem too. Like BSC is like the land of like the penny slots. People just like submitting, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions, trying to get like an, uh, like a little bit of MEV because the transactions don't cost anything. Ethereum is more of like an equally, uh, like you can lose a lot if your algo starts to misfire. Like you start to spend a lot in gas fees, like that could be very costly, especially if you're doing a lot of transactions. Solana is like an entirely different beast where I think most of their transactions are probably MEV. Um, but it's the same dollar value as like, you know, some, some other ecosystem that's comparable. So it's kind of different. And you have kind of like these different archetypes in each. The bottom line, I would say, when you're thinking about MEV is like who's monetizing? It's the usual suspects. Um, it's a small handful of people, maybe like five or 10. And then everyone else is LARPing um, as far as we can tell. Hmm. And I, I, I think the, the other thing too is you don't have to be a searcher or like get some huge raid that you set up and like start doing this. I mean, the staking, most staking services have MevBoost on, uh, you know, and factors that into the whole thing. And, and so, you know, it's, a, it's usually an additional like one to 2% in yield. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think that there's actually too much like individual or business opportunity to go after and like start doing MEV now. Um, let's talk about a lighter. T- I want to get your guys to take on Cosmos, but I want a quick interlude. I want to get a, your take on a lighter topic, which is gaming. Um, you guys raised like a massive amount of money. I think it was 400 million. And I forget if the whole fund is going towards gaming or half the fund or like some large allocation towards gaming. We have an episode that comes out on either Monday or Tuesday with, um, with Stani and Rob, uh, Rob from compound and Stani from, 
um, from Ave. It's the last episode of season one of Bell Curve. It's a really good episode. You guys should listen to it. But actually at the end, I was like, what are you guys excited about for the next cycle? And they were both like gaming. Like we just need, we need, need, need gaming to bring people in. And we think that gaming will bring people in. Obviously, Stani had to plug Lens uh, and decentralized (laughs) social. But they're both really excited about gaming. So I just want to get your guys' like an update on like where is gaming at right now? Because gaming feels super quiet as like a user who is just lurking on Twitter and like not investing in a bunch of games. But for you guys, I'm assuming you guys are saying like, wow, it's crazy space. Like I'm assuming all the L1s are fighting over different games like. Can you just give us a state of like gaming right now? Yeah. And to go back to when we raised the fund and I I think we closed at the end of Q1 last year or uh, this year. Wow. It feels like a year ago. Um, (laughs) The, uh, you know, the reason why we said, and and we didn't say like the whole fund or what we said is half the fund is earmarked for gaming. And it's not, you know, the second you put down like targets for how much you want to put in each uh, dollar value into each category, you're like, you're going to ultimately be wrong. But like at the time, the reason why we said that is because probably 60 to 70% of the game of the pitches that we see on a week to week basis relate to games in some way, uh, either individual solo titles, um, publishers that are going after sort of like the ecosystem approach of games still to this day or back then, I would say it's even higher now. Um, and, uh, not, not by much, but slightly higher. Um, and the quality of those pitches I'd say has, you know, waxed and waned a bit. It's gone up in times, it's gone down in times, but like, it's been pretty consistent in terms of the quality. Um, and so that's the reason why we said it. It's just like, well, this is where we're spending like way more than half of our time. Like this is probably going to be a major theme because usually what we're seeing from the pitch perspective becomes reality, like two years later. And it also makes sense too. the, the business model here is. $200 $200 billion a year is the global gaming revenue going up to 350 in the next five years. And basically like that is 200 right now is more than art, music and movies combined per year. So like the entire box office, music Damn. industry, games is, is larger than that. There's 3 billion people that play games every single, every single month, you know, almost, almost half of the global population. So when you think about the market sizing, there isn't really a larger market, but Really, the the kind of minutia within that is um, about half of the money that goes into gaming is for mobile-based games. And uh, two things have happened. One, Apple and Google have gotten rid of their IDFA, which is basically the identifier for advertisers, which kind of negates a lot of the free-to-play business model concept. And, and so what we're seeing a lot of is the game developers who know how to build games, they've been building them for decades. They basically say, hey, blockchain isn't just like the next platform that could be kind of interesting. It's like blockchain is actually like the only thing that I think I can build a viable business on for my games. And and the second thing that's happening is 1% to 3% of free-to-play gamers actually monetize and, and make up that $100 billion. When you have the ability, if you're just thinking about it from a player perspective, when you have the ability to, instead of spending $9.99, $19.99, or like $59.99 in a game for these virtual tokens that whenever you're done or bored with the game, like, poof, that value goes away. If instead you're ascribing that value and buying something that has a residual value in the form of an NFT, and you're buying it for $10, and maybe you're selling it for 5 or 8 or 12 but that model probably means that the monetization threshold for what these games can expect goes up tenfold. So from one to 3%, maybe it's 10 to 20%. And that's just a completely different business model for, for how you look at gaming. And, you know, the, there's been a lot of stuff to your point that's come out, Axie, uh, you know, Zed Run. A lot of that stuff is basically just like random number generator attached to a UI. 
and like speculative token economics. I'd say there are exactly zero sustainable token model games that have launched so far that have you know residual playing value. But in the next 12 months, I think we're going to hit that candy crush moment where it's like, okay, we see the model. It's working. It's scaling. Let's go. Yep. Hmm. Uh, so just a, a couple other stats. There were 55 billion mobile game downloads last year. Seven per person. That's that's crazy. Uh, $14.5 billion were spent on uh, mobile game user acquisition in 2021. That's half of all mobile acquisition costs for users in general. So like, this is the biggest industry on the planet. It has the most money coursing through it. That's all great. Um, everything that Michael said is true. Like These games are coming. They're building. Like, why does it seem so quiet? I think one of the harder things that crypto people are going to have uh, time wrestling with is that... Uh, Potentially, this doesn't involve us as much as something like DeFi did. Like DeFi felt great because like we were stuffing money in liquidity pools and like we were swapping it and like you know things happening and like the NFT mints were crazy. All of that stuff, I think, at least will be ten times larger next cycle. It'll be you know that much more interesting. NFTs are going to pop off again. Like I'm I'm sold on that. On the gaming stuff, like unfortunately, it just won't involve as many people, you know, like from the crypto Twitter audience set, at least. They, like, they don't, they don't need us. <laughs> it'll, it'll involve a hundred times more people, yeah. but like not as many of them are going to be the crypto Twitter set. And so like, I, like my instinct is that crypto Twitter is going to disparage most of these games. It's a shitty game with like, you know, some token or the NFT suck or like, you know, there's no way for us to use it. All of this indicative right. is like, it's not about you. Like, it's not about crypto Twitter anymore. Like, and that's the point of all crypto. Like, we're slowly onboarding more people. And it used to be about Bitcoin. And then the Bitcoiners couldn't get into Ethereum. And they were salty about that. And then the Ethereum people couldn't get into the multi-chain world. And they were salty about that. Like, we're just going to do this with ever-increasingly larger audiences. But unfortunately, it's just going to involve less of the, the people that are kind of in the industry today. I think everyone's I, – so I think maybe that could be the start of where this, like, reception yeah, the, the narrative comes out. does all boats, though. Like, th that's, the, exactly. that's the good news. It's like I, we're going to make this thing, like, so much bigger and so much cooler and have so much more economic value. But, like, it's not going to be stuff. I, I, I will say I, I've actually had an emotional reaction sometimes to seeing the Web2 companies come into crypto, like Disney doing, like, Polygon or, like, the Starbucks thing. Or, like, I'm in, the, I'm in this – well, actually, never mind. I won't talk about that. But – um. I'm like, I'm like, that's that, like, that's a load of fluff. Like, there's nothing there. Like, they're not doing anything. Well, and, uh, and, but, but I'm like, but I should be rooting for it. But I'm having this like emotional, I'm like, but maybe it's, it's and that's the the reaction that folks are going to have when these games start popping so off. History, history suggests that you are absolutely right. And that this stuff yeah. is never going to go anywhere. It's vaporware. It's just for PR. It's like some BD guy who met with some other BD guy and let's like, let's do a deal. And, and that's it. And, and never comes to fruition. I, I think imagine a world where, you know, you have one of the hardest things to crack into is the app store. The second hardest thing to crack into is getting them to support you from a payments perspective. It, it, there's been talk in the last couple of weeks that Apple has come out and, and they've been talking to developers about being OK using in-app purchase within within iOS to purchase NFTs within app like that concept in and of itself is probably one of the biggest pieces of, of news that is maybe underreported. I, I, we, we took it really seriously. But what that suggests is a user experience where you're playing a game in app, you've downloaded it, you've never touched a blockchain before, you don't even have a Coinbase app, you go to buy an NFT, and it's just all seamlessly right there. It scans your face, you use your thumb and like, boom, you just spent $49.99 to get this NFT. 
maybe you never even know that it's on a chain or like you never pull it off the ecosystem. But but maybe one of your friends is like, hey, did you know that that's an NFT and like you can actually sell it? And maybe the NFT goes up in value and and for and you bought it for 50, maybe you sell it for 60 or 70. Or, or maybe it's like, hey, I'm done with this game. And it's like, ooh, you should like pull that NFT out and like go sell it, you know, at a 50% discount and recoup half of the value. Like that type of an experience is where you get someone who's absolutely non-crypto into crypto and actually using it because there's a financial reason to do so. You just Trojan horse them with IAP. Like that, I think, is a really, really huge onboarding experience that, you know, that's what that's what Robert and, and Stanny are referring to. All right. Let's get it. So our who's uh what what L one is winning the gaming? Uh the gaming the all these gaming companies. No clear winner. Like we we uh start us who's a portfolio company kind of tells us like, you know, where are people building? It seems like a pretty evenly footed race at the moment between Polygon, Solana, Immutable X, um and ETH. Uh, yeah, like I, I would say those are kind of the four the ones that we don't see are like the app chains. Like Game developers are just trying to figure out how to build stuff on chain. Like you talk to them about like having their own token, running their own validate. They're like, I like, no, no, I don't no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah, absolutely not. And so like, you know, do we think that they're going to want their own app chains eventually? Probably the biggest ones. Um, I would also say like things like Board Ape, Yacht Club, uh, and like how big and how impressive they are. Like they weren't even able to do this. So like it's harder than you think. Um, but yeah, it seems like kind of they're all fighting it out. Avalanche as well is another one. Um, yeah. kind of the, the ones with the best BD are, are the ones that are, that seem to be kind of like winning. I don't know if any of them are the long t- term game, yeah. gaming winners though. Yeah. It, it's possible. We still haven't seen that long-term gaming winner. I would say probable that we haven't seen that. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. Uh, Vance, how's the Adam 2.0 research? It's good. It's good. Uh, did you talked to, uh, talk to our analysts yet? Didn't talk to the analysts, did all the research myself, not, oh, uh, nice. Not some boomer who gets somebody else to read the white paper for me. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's super interesting. Um, like I think I came away from my Cosmos research like super bullish on Tendermint, less bullish on Atom. Um, effectively, what the value prop for Atom is is that um, number one, uh, there's this concept of like. Uh, shared security or being able to rent security from kind of like uh, Atom stakers. And, you know, if you're trying to bootstrap your own chain, like just renting security from Atom is like a pretty easy way to start. Um, I think that's interesting. Like you have to pay for, uh, you know, the security with your own native token, which kind of like makes it seem a little bit akin to like Polkadot in many ways where you have to like rent a parachain slot. Like and people say that these things are completely different. I, I think they're probably more similar than many would care to admit. But, um, you know, that is um, an interesting proposition where, like, everyone's exchanging their own native token. Adam becomes kind of like this index bet on all the projects that are happening within the ecosystem. I don't know how much that reflects, like, where the ecosystem is going today. Like, back in the day, like, you know, a year ago, two years ago, I think, like, this would have been, like, you know, great fertile ground for, like, DeFi projects like Frog Nation and, like, you know, the really, like, degen populist ones to, like, start on. Uh, I see less of those projects in the future. I also see the the, ch- the case for like a DeFi app chain less clearly than ever before. Um, and so I think it's going to be games that kind of like use Tendermint as like their app chain basis. But like, you know, these are like big game studios. They're not just like giving away tokens to people in this like egalitarian crypto punk future. Like 
they're business people. They're going to go rent security from somebody cheaper and not for like three or 4% of their token supply. Um, I think also the kind of bear chain with, with uh, bear case with things like Cosmos is that, you know, for games, the most likely candidate for an app chain, like there's not a ton of like cross chain stuff that happens almost definitionally. Like you're not going to be able to take a sword from one game and put it into like the farming game and another, like, it's just like these games are designed very specifically to have a very specific balance. Like, and so like, you know, there's not gonna be a ton of like cross chain interaction with the games that have their own app chain. And I think that's pretty bearish for like Adam value accrual. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like, I think what they're doing is really cool and it's going to work on some level. I just wonder like long-term, like what is the actual constituent set of people that are going to both build on Tenderman and rent their security from, you know, Adam holders. And and wh- how much cross chain stuff happens too? Unclear. Yeah. Good good take, Michael. What do you think? I I, I to- totally agree, and you know, I didn't do as much research as Vance did into Adam 2.0, so I, I kind of got the digest from him. Um, mm. Boomer. But Boomer. Uh, <laughs> well, we divide and conquer. Um, <laughs> the, the the stuff that I think about is like, what is the open source level? It, it's kind of like a AWS versus um, Linux. And um, one of the things that we've been thinking about as well is like, is there a business model to be like basically like app chain as a service? And uh, if you do want to spin up, you know, a, an app chain, whether it's for a game or a DeFi protocol or, or something totally different, like there's a lot of stuff that is involved in that. And Tenderman is somewhat akin to Linux in this example, but but that still begs the question of like who's AWS and who's going to be able to help you like bootstrap the first 21 validator nodes, who's going to be the one that can help with like user provisioning, managing the Etherscan equivalent, you know, do, building, having off the shelf tooling that's just going to help you you run your, your system. Um, and so I think that's kind of a narrative that's popping up with this app chain thesis as well. Um, like there, there's going to be ancillary businesses that, that come about. Um, because of this. Yeah. Do you guys disagree on anything? Yeah. Lots of um, like should Vance get a haircut or not? Have you seen my hair? I used to I used to last year I had like like kind of like shoulder length hair. And he had like <laughs> stop. And now it's like now he swapped, yeah. <laughs> oh damn, you do got the lettuce, Michael. Yeah, he's 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 going. I talk, I talk it. I talk it when it's when it's camera time. <laughs> uh, what do you guys disagree on? Uh, some of the speculative nature of crypto, I think we disagree on. Um, like Michael thinks, like uh, I would say, like a lot of the DeFi speculative super degen stuff, like won't come back. I think it'll come back in like basically the exact same format and just be much larger. Um, I think that's one. Like what, um, like what's one is like like yam from twenty twenty or something like that. I, I, don't think, like, I don't think that's coming back. Like, but like, do I think someone's going to launch like Shiba Inu Coin two and like everyone's going to yeah. speculate on Uniswap on it? Like, I, I see that happening again. Um, I see like the NFT crazy mints coming back as well. Like, you know, like speculation is part of blockchains because blockchains are built for value transfer and programmability. And like, you combine those things together, like you can create like a bunch of like things that are like really interesting from a speculation perspective, you can also create like financial napalm, which just like torches people like kind of like in mass, but like, that's just kind of part and parcel of what we do. And so like, I'm pretty bullish on like degenerate activity returning. 
uh, where I don't, I don't think, I think Michael is, is more uh, on the regulated kind of side, regulated perspective that like, that's what's going to bring people back. Games we're pretty aligned on NFTs we're aligned on. Like we think PFPs are, you know, silly. Um, but like, I at least think they're going to come back and, and be big. I think you're probably more bearish on that. Um, I don't think what else. What do you think, Michael? Anything else? I think that that's it. That's the correct breakdown. I think the the perspective that I have on I think the biggest difference is like this DGen DeFi permissionless DeFi versus permission DeFi. Essentially, um, I, I think the value proposition of DeFi is twofold. The first is transparency and being able to see everything on chain like that. That is a true innovation in terms of financial services. The second is composability. So building apps on top of each other, leveraging different protocols. And but but I think, you know, reading the tea leaves of what's happened over the last six months with, you know, the the massive explosions that we've seen retail getting blown out, uh, you know, there's going to be lawsuits to follow. Doquan is on the run um, all the way to like the OFAC tornado cash sanctions. And, you know, we didn't we haven't talked about it uh, and it's nothing legitimate yet. But like the Uti Dow BZX uh, stuff from the CFTC, like. It's extremely and, and as well as, you know, MICA, uh, all the different potential regulations that are in process right now within within the Senate or the House. Um, every single one of them basically says permissionless DeFi is illegal. And in some way, shape or form, they, they basically try to stamp it out. Um, do I think they're going to be successful? Likely no. Um, you know, is, is there in, in the current implementation of these different bills or regulations or changes that it's not going to happen. And, you know, the, the CFTC stuff is just a complaint. It's not a ruling. Like, but if this is the direction that everybody is leaning, it's just, it's not a question of if it's a question of when this stuff becomes real. Um, and I mean, we've talked about this kind of a little bit so far, but on previous pods, but the, we haven't been able to move fast enough as an industry within DeFi to get to the point of proving true core value to consumers to have the type of stuff that just happened be washed under the under the rug and and i think there's going to be stuff that we as an industry are going to have to pay for that and and so i think you know being permissioned is probably the only way being kyc it is going to be the only way that you know the this stuff will continue to proliferate at the like 10x 100x scale from here do i think the existing DeFi stuff is going to go away absolutely not it, it's going to continue on, you know, you can't take the smart contracts down, but I just don't think they're going to have as much attention. Um, you know, the narrative over the last 18 months of like the institutions are coming, well, well now they're officially not coming or they're not coming to the ones that, that we were thinking they would be coming to. They're, they're going to be running towards the things that they know they have regulatory cover on. And, and that I think is going to drive a lot of activity. Um, do I think retail flows there? Maybe, um, probably yeah. if there's enough liquidity, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just going to be really interesting. And a lot of this is driven, it is driven by sort of like the, the actions over the last six months. My, my perspective is pretty strongly changed. Hmm. Uh, Maker just went through with their $500 million investment in treasuries and corporate bonds. I think it was like 80% treasuries, uh, 20% corporate bonds. I, I, I think it was today uh, it went through, they went through with it. Do you guys think that is a good move because it like aligns them more with like it, it, it almost makes it harder to sanction them now because you're kind of hurting the traditional capital market system if you're a regulator because there's now $100 million in corporate bonds. Or does it is this a bad move because it makes them more like 
are less censorship resistant? Like, what, what do you guys think of this move? I think good move. Um, yeah. Number one, they're probably going to make a bunch of money on the bonds they bought. I mean, yeah. I mean, less from an echo. Well, yeah, actually, I want to hear your whole. And also, like, the long term roadmap is something that you have to keep in view where it's like Rune has stated, like, the goal is to get as much assets and profit into the protocol before it goes fully decentralized and kind of gets cut off. And so, like, it seems like they're moving towards that direction. I don't think maker governance is one to declare, like, we're going in this direction and we're never turning away. Like, I think you just kind of need to look more at what they do versus more of what they say. Um, I also think it makes them more censorship resistant. Like, cool. Uh, you know, you sanction the PSM. We have like $800 million of bonds somewhere that we can draw on in a worst case scenario. Um, yeah. And so I see it's like better for resilience, better for the long term vision and getting to like more profit in the Dow. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like, you know, when yields are higher, like people are going to rush to export capital outside of crypto when when it flips, like it'll be importing. Um, and this is kind of like exportation season at the moment. Yeah. And I think your point, you know, is 100 percent right in that this does make them uh, more, you know, permissioned public DeFi, right? This isn't, they haven't implemented KYC and they haven't done all the things that, you know, regulars would probably love for them to do. But this does put them more in the camp of like, hey, we're willing to at least entertain this stuff. And and maybe not to the same level that you expect, but like, we're getting creative. Yeah. You guys have any memes of the week? Hot takes of the week? Tweets of the week? Let me see. <laughs> I, got, I, I, got, I got nothing. Oh, there's some good ones. I don't mean to pick. I don't mean to pick on them, but basically everything Tom and Giselle has been hilarious. I thought this one was pretty good. Anybody who's watched the uh, the Dahmer Netflix special, I mean, incredibly <laughs> disturbing and, and strange. But uh, there's this one scene before he uh, kind of takes one of his victims, where he like makes them watch this uh, this movie, The Exorcist, and. Uh, and Angela at BTC switched that out for uh, the Bitcoin 30K chart. That was pretty good. Yeah, I saw that. This guy? Oh. It's a, it's a creepy TV show. Um, yeah. I got, I got past one episode and I was like, all right, I, I can't watch this person killing more people. <laughs> I mean, but I think... Uh... Side note, if you look at all of the top podcasts and like a lot of the top shows on like the streaming service... True crime and like serial killer exposition. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Oh yeah, it's all, I mean it's all true crime. It's all. I was talking to um. We're we're trying to like scale the po- our podcast network right now and like really add more shows and stuff. There's, so a, there's talk- a true crime crypto podcast in there somewhere. I know. So I was I was talking. I talked to like the head of podcast at Vox at HBO at like Barstool at Gimlet at Wonder. Like I talked to the head of podcast to like try to learn like what they're doing, and they're like they, all of them. They're like, you want to know the secret? True crime. True, true crime. There is there is no other secret in podcasts that you need to know. True crime. <laughs> Bro, they're, they're, you, just do 2021. Just a true crime season of things that happened back then. I think, yeah. uh, I mean, like the Doquan Interpol story is just nuts. I was going to say, should we go on a I mean, hunt there's a, There's like an investigative like eight-part series podcast on like a Doquan. Honestly, I want to do the, a podcast series on like big moments in history where it's like an eight-part series on the like on the block wars. Like, um, like Bitcoin cash mm. with Bitcoin. It's like a deep dive into that. Then it's like a, uh, you know, some like an eight part series on like Mount Gox. Then they're like, like something, I, I think that'd be really interesting. I, I think so. The other, it, it comes out, I mean, we're, we're recording this on Thursday. It comes out tomorrow. Coinbase. Yes. That's what I was going to say. I'm, I'm hyped for that actually. 
I was uh, I was having dinner last night with uh, one of our friends who who used to um, you know be one of the design leads at Coinbase way back in the day, uh, and and he he said it's going to be really funny. It's basically a two hour produced by Coinbase, written by Coinbase, about Coinbase with only Coinbase people in it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm I'm pumped. I honestly think this was Brian Armstrong. I think this is going to be more about Brian Armstrong than about Coinbase, and I think this is Brian Armstrong being like I'm fucking pissed. That people like do not, like do not understand how hard my freaking job is. It's a pain in the ass to be a founder. I want people to like understand this. That's what I. That, is, that, that, that's what I got from the trailer. This is going to have more marketing pull than their Super Bowl ad. Yeah, I agree. Sure, I, I, um, I think it's a brilliant move. And by the way, every other exchange has been talking to filmmakers to do this uh, behind the scenes, and now they're going to look like they're copying Coinbase. So exactly. Good, good job to Coinbase for moving. Good quickly. speed run. I think yeah. the, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing of the last period of time is, uh, let's, let's get a debrief on your, on your wedding. Uh, with, <laughs> with the ring in the view. <laughs> oh, oh, you don't. Oh, you mean this? <laughs> uh, I mean, the wedding caused the, caused the little mini bull run. You, you know what it is. I, I, got I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> So I mean, the, yeah. hi the highlight of the wedding is uh, we. I mean, we had a wild horror, which was um, uh, which which was uh, very exciting, and it got so crazy that my friend was like in picking up the you know the chair, and my parents were in the chairs, and my mom uh, my mom flew out of the chair forwards. So there's a video of my <laughs> wow. parents like, hey! and then my mom flies forward, and my friend catches her. So that was like, uh, yeah, that was a good. There we go. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Pro uh, friend, so. Congratulations anyway, to the both of you. Yeah. Thank seriously. you, sir. I will actually just say I'm feeling more like refreshed and energized about work than in I have in a long time. And I think that is just a shows that folks in crypto should probably take breaks more because I mean, we were talking about this before the episode. I doubt you guys have taken a break since you started framework. Mike and I hadn't taken a vacation in three and a half years. I'm not sure Mike had ever taken a vacation. I hadn't taken <laughs> one in years. Um, and this was like, you know, Mike's Mike's on vacation right now. I I got married, went on my honeymoon, like, and I'm just feeling really refreshed. So I would say there's people should learn from that. <laughs> I love it. There we go. Yeah. Good message. Whenever you guys are like, I'm not taking vacation, but like, no. good, good message. <laughs> we uh we we yesterday we were joking. Uh, Vance is going to make our team. Uh, I survive 2022 t-shirts. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we'll take a break in 2023, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, anyways, fellas, good, uh, good episode. Again, if you guys are listening to this on the Empire feed, go subscribe to Bell Curve. Uh, it's a good show. Uh, Michael and Vance are on it every single week. So, all right, see you guys next week for another episode of Bell Curve. Bye.